Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Rule for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Stephen Glicker, and in this week's special episode, I'm sitting down with Paizo publisher, Eric Mona, and we're talking all about Pathfinder 2nd Edition, what has come before, what to expect in the next couple of months, and even the next coming years. That's right, we go into details what to expect this year, next year, and maybe even the year after that. So one of the things about Eric is that he has been around so long in this industry. He has been around since Dungeon Magazine that we could talk about a myriad of topics and often do. But to just give you a little general idea of what to expect from this, let's go in order. First, we're going to be talking about the Pathfinder Adventure Path, the Extinction Curse, which is coming out next month. Then we jump into Eric's labor of love, Lost Omens, Absalon, the city of Lost Omens. Absalon is pretty much Eric's baby, and he's sort of designed the city, and he's written like over 100,000 words on this book and the city itself. So he goes into extensive detail what to expect there. We also talk a little bit about his Pathfinder adventure that's coming out next year. The Dead God's Hand, which is going to be a super mega dungeon, and we talk a little bit about that. And then we even talk about the next adventure path, the Agents of Edgewatch in which you're playing cops in the city of Absalon. So you can kind of see where this is going. They often do this, is that like for one year, they kind of focus on one section or area of the world. This year, it's Cortos and the city of Absalon, because the Extinction Curse takes place on the island itself, around the city of Absalon. Then you have the Lost Omens Guide, which is, well, city of Absalon, and it's a gigantic book. Then you have a mega dungeon underneath the city of Absalon, and then... The other adventure path is you're playing cops in the city of Absalon. So we talk a lot about the city of Absalon. Another thing we dive into is, well, the creation of Pathfinder and like where the gods came from, who's responsible for what gods, who's responsible for what sections of the world, because each one of these sections is kind of, quote, owned by different editors. And we talk about how that works. We talk about what to expect in the next coming years, such as what other continents are they going to start exploring, if we're going to start exploring other planets. You're not going to want to miss this, trust me. One thing of note is that there are some spoilers, light spoilers, in the beginning where we talk about Extinction Curse. They kind of give out sort of the main plot and overview, which you don't really find out in the beginning of book one. You kind of find out in the middle of book one. So if you're planning on being a PC and want to be completely unspoiled, I would say skip the first five minutes or at least when we start talking about Extinction Curse, you could probably just skip forward about three to five minutes if you want to come in completely fresh. I'm warning you. Nothing else is spoiled, I think, throughout the rest of the episode. Everything after that, we're just talking generals. Oh, okay, I'll tell you something else. We do kind of spoil some adventure paths that occurred like seven years ago. So if you haven't caught you up in some of these adventure paths and we bring one of them up, 
you might want to not listen. I don't know. Like, we talked a little bit about the ending of Iron Gods, and we talked a little bit about the ending of Reign of Winter. If you haven't finished them by now, I don't know what to tell you. You might be spoiled a little, but yeah, I'm just giving you a little bit of warning. Anyhow, I've been talking too long. Let's get to my interview with Eric Muna. Hey everyone, it's Steve. I'm sitting here with Eric Mona, publisher, chief creative officer, Paizo, and we are going to talk all things Paizo for PAX Unplugged. And how are you doing today, Eric? I am doing spectacular. We're halfway into the con and I've already run a bunch of demos and it's great. PAX Unplugged. So we could talk about a trillion things. Initially, we were supposed to talk about Extinction Curse, mm. which is the new circus-based adventure yeah. path that yeah. everyone seems to be very excited about. Yeah, it's cool to see. You know, we, we, we were sitting around and we wanted to uh, come up with a fun hook for the adventure path. And we knew we wanted it to explore the Isle of Kortos, which is the island where Absalom is. Prior to second edition, there really wasn't a lot of development of that area. So we knew that we wanted to bounce around and we're like, what would be a good reason to have the players move from town to town? I think it was Ron Lundin, who's the main guy running the, yeah. that uh, adventure path, came up with the idea, well, what about a traveling circus? And we've done some of that type of thing in the past and people always like the opportunity to ham it up when they're playing Pathfinder. So we thought that'd be a fun hook. And in this one, you're not just like part of the circus. Like a big part of the adventure path is you literally have to run the circus you have to set up the acts. Yeah. You have to make money. Yeah. You have it's to your advertise. Job. Right. And make improvements. It's like a mini game. I mean, people are like, oh, it's like Kingmaker, but it's way more focused than Kingmaker. Yeah, and I don't think it's quite as complex as Kingmaker yeah. either, where that's like a whole mode of the campaign where right, it's like, right. all right, let's almost like switch the rule set to a different thing. This is more like, you know, incorporating downtime and stuff like that and it just a framework for the whole campaign to give you some things that, that you get to play with other than just fighting monsters and stuff but of course there are plenty of monsters to be fought yes of course like, yeah of course if you're <laughs> you're a circus performer by day monster slayer yes, by night that's exactly right you're going to be fighting a lot of dinosaurs in particular in this one a lot of uh zolgaths troglodytes uh, as they've been known uh and it's going to be pretty cool the whole backstory of the campaign is very very interesting i think and exciting and it kind of involves uh our boy Aridin, the god of humanity, who raised the Isle of Kortos from the floor of the inner sea. And, uh, you know, the problem with the big rock that you've dredged up from the bottom of the ocean is there's probably not a lot of food and stuff growing on there. So to solve that problem and to help feed the uh, pilgrims who started flocking to the island over the years, our friend Aridin went down into the Darklands and stole some artificial suns out of a, uh, a subterranean cavern and Brought them up to the surface, these crystals they call Aeon Stone, or Aeon, uh, well, they're Aeon Towers, Aeon Orbs, I believe is what they're called. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and for millennia, those have, uh, helped the, you know, the agriculture grow and the, get the animals stronger and things like that. And now what's happened is some Zolgaths, they finally pieced together what happened to their, to their beautiful vault-like homeland all those thousands of years ago. And they would like their artificial suns back. And so they come back up to the surface. Only to discover, of course, that Aridin has been dead for now 120 years or so. And uh, they start kind of reclaiming some of those orbs. And uh, that's not good for the economy of Absalom. So, of course, only a circus can help solve the problem, right? So, I was curious when I was reading through this, how much of this is planned ahead of time? Because it seemed like almost, wow, this has 
came, this originally came out like the lore like yeah. 11 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Like, were you really planning that far ahead that like, oh, we'll put these orbs up that sort of run the Isle of Cortos, but if something happens to them, things go bad thinking we'll make an adventure around that someday or it yeah. just happened to be coincidence no or? i mean back so the the it's interesting the absalom itself of course we did a, a guide to absalom book about two years into the system and it's always been the basis of the pathfinder society organization both in the world and in the real world in terms of organized play um but uh, beyond absalom and a couple of the outlying towns and some of the Cairn lands where there are different dungeons and things, we hadn't done much with the island. And so um, when we were sitting down to do the Lost Omens World Guide, the first world book for second edition, I kind of put my thumb on the Isle of Cortos because I've been working a lot on Absalom for other future products. And I said, you know what? I think it's time to really go into more detail. This thing is 15, 20 miles across. This is not a small island. There's lots of opportunity for other stuff. We started by looking at some... Uh, a handful of uh, Pathfinder Society adventures had jumped out in other places, so that started laying down a couple of pins. We knew there needed to be a big swamp on the top, and then I started thinking about food and agriculture and what you would need to, to feed a city of 350,000 people. And then I pretty much came up with the Aeon Orbs idea at that point, and uh, knowing that that would be a fun adventure hook, there's a very, very, very subtle Easter egg about the fate of one of those orbs. Uh, I, I think it's... I think you can tell if you read the uh, Inner Sea World, or I'm sorry, the uh, the Lost Omens World Guide. But uh, one of those orbs is actually hidden somewhere in Absalom, um, the city itself. Now that doesn't come into play in this adventure path, but the other four or five are the focus. And yeah, Cortos really hasn't been explored that much. No. I mean, there's. I actually did the adventure. I did some of the society play. Yep. There's like one or two where you're helping out centaurs. And obviously the city itself, but otherwise there's there's no there's one knows not much. Yeah, exactly right. And so for me to be able to come back to setting that I co-created, um, you know, almost a decade ago, and find such prime real estate that's essentially a blank slate was very very exciting because it gave us the opportunity to kind of almost retroactively focus on some things that probably always should have been a bigger part of the this setting. And one of those things, honestly, is Aridin himself. You know, here's a god who's been dead about a century before the, the setting begins. But it was, you know, it was like if uh, all of a sudden the Catholic Church has realizes there's no God or something, and then, but they've still got vast political power. They still have all kinds of uh, real estate and things like that. And I think that's a very interesting uh, sort of element. And, uh, you know, because Aridin is dead, when we would do books like Intercede Gods and coverages of the gods, he wouldn't really have an entry. And so it wasn't until Pathfinder number 100 where I finally wrote a big article about Aridin and his religion that that started kind of coming more forward. And I think, I, you know, in fairness to my colleagues, I think most people were just waiting for me to get off the pot and, and say, you know, more about my own God that I made up before they wanted to kind of step on my toes, which I appreciate. But I took an awful long time to do that. And so it's nice to finally get a chance to put the spot. Well, it's on. only been like, what, 12 years? Yeah, something like that. You know? That's okay. Yeah, I've done a few things here and there. But uh, but yeah, so this is a good opportunity. And for me, it's a good opportunity to kind of get a little bit more involved in the, the ground level creative stuff instead of trying to be on top of the mountain and instructing other people what to do. So there's so much we can talk about, but sure. we might as well jump into the next one, which is a lot of people are very excited about the Absalon World Guide, yeah, the city guide that's coming out. And yeah. you and I were talking about it earlier, and I know you've been writing, I heard like 90,000 words or something you've written? Or? Uh, well, no, I've written 90,000 words. Okay, so 
it's a complicated story. I've been keeping an Absalom continuity document mm -hmm. all, the, all the whole time. So whenever we would say something about the city in a PFS adventure or in a novel, I'd add it to that kind of continuity Bible. Mm -hmm. And that grew to 90,000 words. The actual Absalom book, I think, is far bigger than 90,000 words. But it really kind of started with that continuity document, which included all the material from uh, the book Owen Casey Stevens wrote about the Absalom in early first edition. It included the stuff that Jason Bullman and I wrote in the... Uh, the various world guides we put out, you know, the Gazetteer all the way through the Inner Sea World Guide. And then from there, we've extrapolated a tremendous amount of additional information, kind of tied it all together. I've been focusing a lot lately on the interrelationships between the various NPCs and, and, and focusing a lot on, like, how will the Game Master use this book at the table? Because my fear is that if we have a 300-page book that's just a, a fun read, then it becomes a big memorization challenge. So when your players are like, I want to go to the Temple of Desna, you as a, as a GM have to kind of remember, oh wait, yeah, okay, Temple of Desna, that's in the Ascended Court. And uh, okay, and its high priest is this, and you know, and these are some other facts about it. Those ordinarily in a book might be spread over three or four different chapters and all that. So we're really trying to make it so that you can kind of get in a, a quick burst, almost like an encounter, everything you need about that key location. What NPCs you're likely to encounter there, kind of where in the city it is, then all those NPCs. There's a giant uh, gloss, glossary in the back with one to five paragraphs on every single named person in the city. It's insane. And it's, 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 I say it's insane because literally it is such an obsessive level of detail that at this stage, uh, other developers like, you know, put together all of the the buildings and you know the, the 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 new stats for the Gilman race, you know our ancestry and all that stuff. But it kind of took the guy who's been obsessively recording every proper noun that we've ever dropped about Absalom to kind of put it all together with that last section. So a lot of my efforts uh, on that book in the last few weeks have been really blowing out the NPCs um, in a pretty incredible way. And this book. When does it come out, the episode? It's uh, scheduled for April, I think. It's in the spring. Okay. And I know a lot of people have been very excited about this just because it's the biggest city in the world. And yeah. we know some things like, well, puddles sank right. and it gets flooded. And we know a little bit about these areas. Yeah. yeah. And you have been exploring them, obviously, in the adventures and the world guides and in in society but now we finally have quote the official yeah the second official well and the thing that's going to be really cool is very shortly after the absalom book comes out we're going to be launching our agents of Edgewatch uh, adventure Ooh. path campaign and that's where you play as members of the city watch right and so it's like a, a police procedural kind of in the city of absalom where again clues are going to take you all over the place and that'll really be like the adventure that uh, that allows you to explore that oh yeah i forgot about that yeah Oh, I'm super stoked for that one. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so uh, Extinction Curse is all about the Isle of Cortos. Right. But we wanted to try to almost build reasons why you wouldn't go to Absalom for it, because we didn't want it to be a big urban campaign. Got it. Agents of Edgewatch is the urban campaign we've wanted to do, really, probably since the Dungeon Magazine days, where it's just a fully integrated, kind of go wherever you want in the city. So it's like cops, Agents of Edgewatch style, like... Yeah, a little bit. And then mixed in, part of the, the um, central conceit of the campaign is uh, the new acting mayor, Winslow Starborn, um, who's trying to do all kinds of reforms in the city, decides that the Precipice District, which has been this monster-infested ruin for like 20 years, 
that's gone feral long enough, and he tries to uh, reinvigorate that neighborhood. And the way they do that is by launching this big thing called the Radiant Festival, which is kind of a World's Fair sort of an element. So you've got a World's Fair element going on, you've got a cops element going on, you have an urban adventuring element going on. It's very, very cool. So this is almost like an arc in the sense that the first adventure path you're doing everything outside of Absalon, right, and then right. the second one, you're inside Absalon. Yep, yep. And then if you if you take uh, the adventure that I'm writing, which is The Dead God's Hands, that's going to be a 128-page super adventure. It's all a dungeon under the city. So you can explore outside the city, you can explore in the city, and eventually you can explore under the city as well. And then you'll be done. And then we'll do something in the skies above the city, and right. then we'll do something in the harbor. And then, No, I don't know. We're going to move on from Absalom after that. So I'm actually just curious. It's like every one of these adventure paths I've been thinking about, because you have so many. You're up to like, I can't even, how many other, like I don't know what 20, you're talking about. There's only, there's only one right now. Yeah, no, and, well, uh, you know what I bet. Right. right. There's so yeah, many. there's over 20. There's, yeah. We did a lot of them. But most of them are, you have to, quote, save the world, or you have to save something. But then you have something like Kingmaker, which a lot of people find very interesting. Yep. Because... Yeah, you're exploring, but for the first time ever, you actually, as an adventure path, are building something up. Yep. And you're like actually created. Yep. That. And have you explored doing that again? It's like I saw a little bit of that in the Extinction Curse because you're not really building, but you are building a circus and trying to improve it. Right. And it's like a smaller mini version, as you said. It's not quite uh, Kingmaker, but I think people talk about Kingmaker so much because it was the first time that you actually created instead of just destroyed. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Kingmaker has been one of our most popular campaigns, right. and so we're always kind of trying to think about what what elements of that were most appealing to people and how can we sort of bring that forward. At least in the first three Adventure Paths that we've announced for second edition, there's not quite that right, same right. style. Although, you know, trying to uh, solve a crime spree in the city is a little bit different than, you know, preventing a god right, from right, eating right. the planet or something. So we do try to kind of scale the 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 threats if it if every six months you have to save the entire planet saving the planet gets a little tiresome you know so we want to try with other other themes as well and then of course we like to jump around geographically too and so uh, we've been discussing where the next few adventure paths will be set and it's getting pretty exciting it's getting pretty crazy mm -hmm. yeah are we ever going to start going outside of uh, the Galarian? Not the Galarian, the... Um, the Inner Sea? Inner Sea, yes. Um, well, yes. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've taken little jaunts and forays right. here and there in different adventures. Um, and uh, the Age of Ashes actually jumps around a little bit right. as well. Um, and we are working our way toward that. I mean, there's a reason why you put a whole globe in the uh, rule indeed, book. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, and now, you know, as we're... Moving forward with second edition, we, we're not, at least right now, we're not tremendously interested in recovering ground that we've already done. So, for example, it's probably going to be a little ways before we do another adventure path set in Cheliax, because we did two right in a row with uh, right. Hell's Rebels and Hell's Vengeance. So, we kind of feel like that's covered for a while. We'll, we'll probably go back to Varicia at one point, you know, because that's been kind of the, that's the launching point for the whole Pathfinder mm -hmm. game and the brand with, uh, with Burnt Offerings, the Pathfinder number one. So there's always that kind of magnet pulling us back there for nostalgia, if nothing else. But we don't have any plans yet to go back there as of yet. Uh, some of the stuff we're discussing for 2021, which has yet to be solidified, um, but is solidifying as I speak, is going to kind of move us closer to some off-the-map regions by covering some stuff that is on the map but is not ever really been covered in a great deal of detail. I mean, I think at this point and at this level... 
this maturity of Pathfinder that I think it's safer to go to those areas. Like, it probably, oh, I totally agree. Yeah, like in the beginning, you definitely didn't want to just go too outside the map. But right. it's been 12 years. Like, people, I think, have been playing this game want to see the weirdness. I they do, too. To... Uh, well, and the numbers bear that out. I mean, we just yeah. had a meeting a couple of weeks ago where we went, and we were looking at mostly sales numbers, but a couple of other indicators, uh, trying to sort of peg the popularity in a broad sense of these different adventure paths. And although it's a far more an art than a science, even with some numbers in front of you, um, one of the things that I think we've kind of come to the conclusion is, is that when we try to sort of play it safe, and, and usually that'd be as a reaction to very much not playing it safe in the, say, the previous adventure path. So we might do something really odd, like, say, Iron Gods, where it's, you know, technology and a crash spaceship. <laughs> well, it's one of the most popular campaigns yeah, we did. Yeah. And uh, Strange Eons, which is kind of the Lovecraftian horror campaign. Very, very popular. Kind of in, in the the area of those adventure paths, we might also have programmed some, like, more safer ones, you know, a little bit more traditional sword and sorcery, maybe more traditional kind of fantasy themes. Those don't seem to capture the attention as much as the slightly weird ones. So I think that while we'll always have, you know, touchstones that are very familiar and to some degree comfortable for everybody, you know, dungeon crawls, fight the dragon, that kind of stuff, we do want to mix it up a little bit. And so that you're going to see you're all members of the circus. You know, one of the things I say is like every adventure, but I think also every adventure path, you should be able to describe it like a Friends episode where it's the one where blank. And if you can't do that in a sentence, your concept is probably a little too diffuse for players or GMs to go, oh, I've always wanted to run a campaign like that. Or, gee, I've never even thought of that, but a circus might be really fun. Uh -huh. But if you sort of say, oh, this is an adventure where, you know, oh, it's on the Isle of Cortes. This is the adventure where you go to four different towns and explore a mystery. That doesn't mean as much to people as you're in a circus and it's like, ooh. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about it because, I mean, I've run a lot of adventure paths. Mm -hmm. I mean, first, you're talking about like a two to three year campaign. Yep. It's one a big investment if, of time. One if you're super fast and lucky. But realistically, it's, you know, probably two to three years. Yeah. So you're going to want to do something that you haven't done. I'm thinking of the most popular ones are probably like Skull and Shackles. Very popular. Pirates. Very popular. Kingmaker, Very which popular. is like, yeah, you're building stuff. Iron Gods, which Very I popular. freaking loved. It's also one of the best organized adventure paths, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. It was extremely well organized, and it just had a little bit of everything in yep. that one. It was great. And I think that was one that James Jacobs uh, outlined and, and ran and, and was just like wanted to do it for the longest time. And so it does help. It's kind of like the Absalom book right. that I'm working on right now. I've had things in my head for like 10 years. Oh, yeah, I want to keep doing this Make game. Make it easy. Keep doing know, this game. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Reign of Winter. Pretty popular. Well, the thing is also, Random Winter, maybe not as popular in general, but it has probably the number one most popular module. I would say Rasputin Must Die is right, very popular. Is one yeah. of the most popular yep. modules yep. of all time. Yeah, I think that might be true. And that That's module. That's Brandon Hodge. I mean, he's a great writer. It is, and, that module is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, even if none, if you've never read that module, just read it. And Rasputin? Yeah, no, that was awesome. As a, he's one of the greatest monsters I've ever I, seen. It was the moment <laughs> where we had that idea. Yeah. You know, we were sitting and, and we were talking about Rain of Winter. We wanted to do a Baba Yaga adventure path. We wanted to do an adventure path where you jump around to different worlds. I think it was maybe Rob McCree. I can't remember who it was, but somebody's like, why don't we just have him fight Rasputin? And yeah, everyone laughed Earth. and we're like, <laughs> and we're like, no. And like for over the next 10 minutes of the meeting, you could almost see the light go over every single person's head. And, and someone then was like, no, seriously, let's do that. And then we're like, yeah, let's do that. That'd be super fun. And it was super fun. And know? not only that, it takes place 
like during World War One, yeah. on Earth in yeah. Russia in the yeah. winter. It's like that is like there's it's the other thing that's a big part of it is that having a uh, something you can recognize oh, in your critical. own life, yeah. right? If there's nothing you can bring from your own experiences into it, it's hard to yeah. actually picture what's happening. But here, it's like everyone knows about Russia. You know, even if you've never been there, it's like Russia, cold, right? Like, people with accents. Fur coats, right, 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 you know, right, it's right. like, oh, it's probably horrible there during World War One. Right. It's like you just got it all in your mind, yeah, and voila. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> and, and and we took a similar approach, frankly, to the whole setting, which is like, you know, some people would say, oh, well, you know, there's Vikings and there's ancient Egypt and all that stuff, and and that's kind of not creative. And it's like, well, that's as maybe, but I'll tell you, when you're making a campaign setting for a bunch of strangers, the fact that they have some cultural stuff they can hook into is right. actually very helpful. So if you compare that to say something like Tecumel which for the Empire of the Petal Throne game from the 80s where everything's completely made up and everything's in a fake language that the guy invented. I mean, it's all very interesting as an academic pursuit, but there's really nothing in my experience for players to kind of hook into. And so I think it's helpful to have some so of the So what are some of the more popular adventure paths as well? Uh, was Carrying Crown a bit popular? Yeah, it's in there. That was a good I one. love that yep. one. I yep. love that one. It was well. It was also nice of you almost had them the theme per book. Yep, yep. I really liked it. I think Plus, that helps. The second book. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's a lot. The second book and the fourth book, where you had the Cthulhu Horrors in the yeah, fourth book. I mean, and, dude, you gotta, I mean, Richard Pett writing the adventure where you defend Frankenstein? Come on, man. Pretty cool. It was yeah, awesome. I mean, <laughs> it, it's great. And some of these folks, you know, we've been working with for 10, 15 years at this point. Richard right. Pett's a great one. Brandon Hodge, who did Best Speed Must Die. So it's great to get to kind of develop these ideas and then develop some of these writers and have them work with us to kind of build aspects of the Pathfinder game and the world. But again, it's like everyone wants to see the new areas. Everyone wants yeah. to see. It's like, okay, you know what? Absalon is, is good just because it's so big. Yeah. You can run, you know, the whole campaign just in the city if you wanted exactly. to. Like yeah. it's, it's, totally it's so big. So you can never run out of things there. But I think people are very curious to know what's going on in other planets. Oh, what's well, going I bet they on are. It, I, I bet they are. I bet they are. Of course, there's Starfinder for that, but... Do you want to yeah. know what's going on now? Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, I think in a weird way, maybe the existence of Starfinder makes an adventure set on, you know, in Pathfinder on right. one of the other planets, maybe even a little bit more interesting, right? Because you can kind of see... Where they came from. Yeah, and maybe there's fun little reverse Easter eggs you could do and all yeah. kinds of stuff, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. All so right. now it's been a few months. Yep. It's come out. Yep. All the core books, like the Core 3 came out. Yep. We're even getting to now... I'd say the second wave yep. of like Gods and Magic and some of the secondary books yep. that are coming out. How's it been going? How's... Great. I think it's been going very well. Let me answer that first as a gamer. Okay. I'm loving the game. You know, right. I mean, it's it's a dream to demo at a show like this. There's a lot fewer sort of corner cases and weird exceptions that take 10 minutes to explain. So I like that aspect of it a lot. Um, and I've been able also to bring some newer players into my own personal game. I decided after spending almost a decade playing Pathfinder with game designers and people I work with and get to hang out with all day. I wanted instead to try to play with local friends and my girlfriend and, and folks who are, you know, are not professional gamers. And it's been remarkably easy to get them into the, this version of the game in a way that I'm not 100% sure would have been quite as easy with first edition. I mean, I love first edition. I've played it as much or more than almost anybody. But um, there, there were some elements, particularly some sort of legacy elements that... Uh, that we had to include that made it hard to explain to people. There's still a few of those, you know, it's still hard to explain to someone who's never played what 
the difference between character level and spell level is and things like that. So the next guy who gets to do this, or perhaps the, the woman who gets to do it after that, is going to be able to kind of hopefully clear away some of that stuff. But right now, I think where we're dealing with a lot of people who've been playing some version of this game for 10, 20, 30 years, that connectivity is still useful. So um, it's been going well. You know, the sales are good. Uh, the Overall, the reviews are very strong. People seem to love it. I think there's still a handful of folks who are waiting, you know, for the next batch of classes or they're not quite done with their first edition campaign. So it'll be interesting to see what things look like when everybody's on board. Um, of course, not everyone will be on board 100%, but we just like making the best game that we can and uh, if people want to play that with us, that's fantastic. Yeah, but the thing about second edition, I've been thinking about this and talking about it with some of the other people, is that you have a lot of things going for you. First of all, the issue with first edition is that it was actually built on Dungeons & Dragons 3.5, yep. which was built on 3.0. That's exactly right. So you have so much legacy code in there, if you will. It was 10 years <laughs> old before it even started. Right. Yeah. And it's there was a lot of design decisions. The design market and the way that games are designed and even the, how much people <laughs> understand. Like if you go to a random person and say an NPC or a level or a magic yeah. item yeah. and like 20 years ago, yeah. if you walked to someone in the middle of the street and asked them that, they'd probably think you're insane. Right. But nowadays, you can probably talk to anyone, and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. I think just about, you know, I mean, that was one of the interesting things when we did, and this was years ago now even, yeah. but it speaks to your point exactly, when we did the um, uh, box set, the uh, the beginner box mm -hmm. for Pathfinder. We did testing at a, at a consumer testing facility with the one-way mirror, and we watched 15-year-old kids trying to run our game for the first time, which was harrowing. You know, you couldn't talk, you couldn't explain initiative to them or anything. You just had to watch them try and figure it out for themselves. And that actually helped us a lot with how to format that box and, you know, how to explain stuff. But one of the things that it really did teach us is that most people understand 90% of the terminology already. You know, hit points, armor class. Uh, people don't need to be taught that stuff. What they do need to be taught is the stuff that most computer games hide kind of behind the screen. So the order of fighting, who goes first, you know, stuff like that. And that, that if you can focus on teaching that stuff and you don't have to teach the other stuff, it becomes easier to learn the game itself. Right. So back to my point is so you're able to come up with this design, design space that's like, okay, everyone's sophisticated. Everyone has this vernacular they already know. So we don't have to concentrate and spend 40 pages in the book explaining what hit points are, what right. armor class, yeah. and what attributes are. Yeah. We can spend like three pages, right. and we're done. Right. And now we can concentrate on more crunch and more yep. of the fun stuff. Yep. The other aspect of second edition is that you've already spent like 10 plus years building up Pathfinder. Yep. And, you know, when first edition came out, you had to invent the gods. You had to invent the societies. Right. That's true. That's true. You had to invent like, what are Hell Knights? Yep. What's the Mantis Guild? Like, right. what's, what are these societies? Right. Nowadays, people know. Yeah. Or you already have it. So when you come out with a book, you can say, okay, here's everything you need to know about these already established guilds and yep. these organizations. And it already feels like, it's funny, we've been talking about it. You've only come out with a couple of books. Yeah. But it feels like you've come out with much more. Yeah. yeah. Because... We already know the history, and right. it feels very packed. Like yeah. even though it's like a thousand pages or so a book, mm. it feels like five thousand pages. Yeah, especially if you've got some familiarity with that old stuff, right? right? And right. I think that in a way, I think that's really good because you know, with a game where people have been playing for a decade, there's quite a few people with a sizable Pathfinder collection of stuff, right. you know. And I think obviously, anytime you're changing the rules, one of everyone's main concerns is like, well, what about all this stuff that I've already bought? And whereas 
it would take some effort, you know, to run a, a adventure using the new rules, an old adventure. A lot of that lore and stuff is still, you know, we haven't changed the timeline. You know, it's not like the Pathfinder Society didn't exist before mm -hmm. second edition. So a lot of that lore is still kind of very no, I go back to my first edition books all the time still yeah. because they're still there. Like, oh, I wanted to know more about like uh, Caden Killeen. Like, yeah, there's not a t there's like there's actually not as much about him as you might think. But yeah. I went back and found some of my older books and was able to like read more about him sure. and like, you know, his history for one of my PCs who was playing. Yeah, and, I mean, and his mythology him. hasn't changed. Right. You know, exactly. And stuff like that. Yeah. So you're able to still use that. But then when you have the second edition books, it's like, OK, here's now, quote, the new rules. Like yeah. if you want to follow the god. Here's what new spells you get. Right, right. And here's what special items you can find in the world and so forth. Yep. The other thing about second edition that almost seems overwhelming is that it's so easy for you to add weapons mm. and feats and backgrounds mm -hmm. that even in less than half a year, that, how many backgrounds are in the game already? I mean, there's a lot. There was like 80 <laughs> some in the, in the uh, Lost Omens World Guide was I a know. lot. I, We're not doing backgrounds in every book, you know? So right. like, there's no backgrounds in the Absalom book. There's no backgrounds in, um, I don't think there's backgrounds in the character guide. I can't remember. Um, but so different things we're going to focus on at different times. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of options. It's Pathfinder is, a lot of people were afraid. It's like, well, you're just going to simplify it. Well, yeah, the rules are easy to learn, but we still want that depth of customization options. We really want to have a game where you can imagine whatever hero you want to be, and then the rules will show you a way to make that happen. It's funny you say it's like, oh, it's not as deep. I'm like, I beg to differ when we're sitting there. We're still looking up rules every so often, but yeah. we are trying to do like the trip attacks and trying to right, do like right. combat maneuvers, which are so much easier oh, yeah. now yeah. than before and actually viable to do. I think so. And also the three action economy, boy, it's like, I don't think you're going to hear the end of that for the rest of your life. I think that's like a miracle. That thing is so useful. And it's so, so everyone, good. like every I game, I, I can be to my 40th session and people are like, man, this three action, it's, I so, know, it's so good. Easy. It's so good. And it just makes. I mean, look, I'm only going to compare it to our own games, but right. it just makes other ways of handling that just seem so Baroque and complicated. And it's just laughable, you know, the difference between trying to explain seven different types of actions and okay. just being like, yeah, pretty much everything you want to do is an action. Yeah. It's got these two dots. It's two actions. Oh, yeah. OK. You know, it doesn't take that much to figure that out. So it's exciting. So what about your decision to do this hard reset with the world and get Tar Buffon out and about? Right. Because it's interesting is that everything I'm always reading about second edition, it almost seems kind of depressing. It's almost like Lord of the Rings. Mm. It's almost more like in the second book of Lord of the Rings, the two towers, because it's like, okay, things are kind of bleak right now. Like, yeah. oh yeah, the big bad guy who wants to destroy the world, who's like everyone's scared of. Yeah, he broke out of his prison right? and he's just hanging out. Oh, and the last wall? Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. I mean, there's I a, mean, there's look, a lot of horrible tough. things the going on. The world needs heroes, and that's the jobs of the player characters. I mean, every adventure that we make, or every big kind of bad character that we introduce, is an opportunity for heroes to take those people out or to resolve those situations. And so, one of the reasons okay. that Tar Bafon, the Whispering Tyrant, was released upon the world yet again, is that when we advanced the timeline, we wanted to make some of the victories that player characters had done through the adventure paths sort of canonical. So the idea, spoiler alert, but you know, if you've played through Wrath of the Righteous, there is a very significant ramifications of the player's victory. And, and that means 
a whole nation that was overrun with demons with open gates to the abyss and things. There's still some demons there, but it's more of a mop-up operation than a, than a, a waterfall of evil into the world. And so without that sort of looming threat on the horizon, which is in and of itself kind of a fantasy trope, we wanted to create another one. And so that's kind of where Tarbathon comes in. We want the setting to have a big looming threat on the horizon. But I'd say unlike the... I mean, we did the whirlwind with the idea that we'd eventually do an adventure path where you seal it up. I think we've got a little bit better sense of like, there's not necessarily a meta plot over multiple adventure paths, but Tar Baffon's not just going to hang out. Like we've got, he's got a plan that we'll see okay. kind of happening throughout whatever the course of second edition may be. You know, if it's, it's like the Cylons; they have a plan. Yeah, except in this case, yeah, that we actually do. I was going to say, plan. except, except they really do yeah, have a that plan. That was very discouraging in Battlestar Galactica <laughs> when it turns out no, that whole thing was a lie every week. But no, we've got some, we've got some really exciting plans. You know, a lot of us have been working on Pathfinder now for ten years. There's things we want to see happen. You know, there's there's stuff we've been setting up. And, you know, you spend a decade setting up dominoes. I mean, at some point you want to see them fall, right? And so it, 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 I think that if I can sort of prognosticate to what will happen at the end of second edition, whenever that may be, hopefully a long, long time from now, I already have a pretty good idea of what the final adventure I know what's going to happen. Be. What do you think is going to happen? Galarian disappears. We never hear from him again. And then oh. it goes into Starfinder. Hey, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's not what happens. Oh. But, uh, but no, we've got some neat... We're setting up a lot of stuff. And I think that, that over maybe about two or three years from now, people will be able to start kind of getting a sense of like, oh, they're sort of setting up a major thing here. Not that, it, that it's important to each individual thing, but there'll be little clues here and there as to kind of what, what's afoot. And Tarbathon is heavily involved. How do you decide where to put the story elements? Are you going to put... Cause so you have, obviously, society adventures. Mm -hmm. You have standalone adventures. Mm -hmm. And then, obviously, the adventure paths. Um, we're running right now Plague Stone. And Plague Stone actually has a lot of, like, oh, like half of the characters we're running with is like, oh, I was a last wall. And, yeah. like... I, it was terrible. And there's yeah. one of the guys, one of the side quests is, oh, I have to help this guy who's lost his buddy at Last Wall. Like, there's Last Wall is like right there right. in the adventure. I mean, that's very intentional. Yeah, it's very intentional. And then you have obviously these adventure paths where they mention it. Yep. Like, oh yeah, Last Wall, all the goblins came over because Last Wall's gone. And like, right. you know, all. And where did they go? They went, they, they, some of them went to Absalom. So when we get to the Absalom right. book, there's a new and goblin king living there. And the Ulthan too, the Watcher Lord of, uh, Last Wall is now living sort of in right. exile in Absalom. And some of the society adventures are even like, oh, now the goblins are showing up to go into the puddles. Right, exactly. you got to go hang out exactly. and make friends with exactly. them. So how do you decide how to bring that in? Like, where are you going to be bringing that story? Do you try to spread it out everywhere? Or is it is that intentional? I mean, it sounds like it is intentional. Yeah, but... I mean, and the answer really, there, there's not really one answer. Some okay. of it is intentional. You know, some of it is like, we knew that we wanted to set up something... Uh, in the Lost Omens world guide, for example, that we we're going to pay off in Agents of Edgewatch, right? We're always at least, I'd say, two years ahead in terms of knowing where we're going. And then maybe two, the next two, three years are like, we think we're probably going to end up there. I've learned over the years that it's really foolish to make really concrete plans more than maybe three years in advance in this business. So I don't. But, um, but I know, you know, what's in Agents of Edgewatch. I know what's obviously an Extinction Curse before that. We've got, I know what's the next one after that. And I know what the next one after that is. And so there are little threads. 
again, we're talking about stuff that people like you yeah. will catch and be really excited about. But you know, if you miss it because you're only that's the only AP you've ever read, it's not going to harm your enjoyment mm-hmm. of the AP. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's lots of little Easter eggs, and then there's different things that different writers are really focused on. You know, like James Jacobs, for example, has been dealing with like. New Thassalon and uh, Nocticula being sort of redeemed as a demon goddess. So that's kind of, you're more likely to see some of those themes in stuff he's written. Jason's very focused on Razmir and on the Last Wall storyline. And so his uh, um, Knights of Everflame adventure uh, with Geek and Sundry that he's doing live play of is ties into Last Wall and ties into Razmir and it ties into his old Everflame adventure, which ties into Razmir. And so there's elements. Each of us kind of, you know, if you see a Razmir element in a thing, it's like there's a good chance Jason was involved. If you see an Aridin thing in there, there's a pretty good chance I was involved. If you see Nocticula, pretty good chance James was involved. And we each have multiples of these, right? But everyone's just kind of got their own little subplots that they like weaving in now and again. And so some of that's just planned, and then other things just kind of happen. So what were some of the things everyone I know has contributed something from their home campaigns into Pathfinder? Yeah. Like Tree Razor, right, was like one of the more famous ones. Yeah, like, it happens. So- James drew him on, and when he was like eight years old, right, or something like that. Right. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, he brought in these old like homemade D and D modules he made when he was a kid, and they're it, it's awesome. And you were even talking to me about the the game that you were playing, Talos. Yeah, Monty Cook's big long campaign. I was a player in that for about eight years. And you are in yeah. his book. Yeah, for my Talos. characters are in there. So what are some of the things that you quote added in I mean obviously a lot of it To Galarian? Yeah, to Galarian. Um well when we sat down and decided we were gonna do a campaign setting, um one of the things that I had been working on sort of on my own was an idea of a kind of a little miniatures game I wanted to do that was all about colonizing a different planet and there were these like four or five different forces that would go through from a fantasy world that would go through gates and they would try to kind of like pacify this alien planet and i never really got too far into the alien planet part of it but i put a lot of work into the different factions there would be and one of those factions was a uh diabolical empire uh called cheliax that i've been writing about since college and different um fantasy drivel that I've written in over the years. Uh, One of them was kind of a uh, American Revolution based kind of, you know, democratic sort of thing. And then another one was like a sister nation of that whose revolution went completely awry and was messed up. And then I also because, you know, I me, I guess I had a Viking nation in there. So basically, I would say uh, the lands of the Linorm Kings, Cheliax, uh, Andoran, Galt, uh, Absalom's Jason and mine together. Um, that's those are some of the main ones. And then I had other things that I wanted to put in. The River Kings is my idea. Uh, probably the World Wounds. I mean, Jason and I designed ninety percent of the setting just really together. Uh, so, so the the ten percent and I don't you know. Well, it's totally. Oh, I get it. I'm, yeah. I'm just throwing numbers out, right? right. So. If you go and you focus on Varicia or the gods, James Jacobs is like 90% of that with Wes Schneider and James Sutter helping out. So basically, James Jacobs, Wes Schneider, and James Sutter were working on the Rise of the Rune Lords and the Curse of the Crimson Throne, really detailing Varicia from the top to the bottom, really getting into the gods. And at the same time, Jason Bullman and I were doing the rest of the worlds in the, what became the Gazetteer for first edition. So... Pretty much everything that's not Varicia and a handful of other locations 
kind of were co-created by me or Jason with a couple of other exceptions. So we went to the whole staff and we basically said, here's a bunch of how we made the campaign setting originally is we, we did a big brainstorm and like what kinds of settings do people like to play in? What types of campaigns are there? Oh, there's people who love to play an urban campaign and never leave. There's people who love really political stuff. There's people who love fighting demons. There's people who love wars between two different countries. And so for all of those different types of campaigns we could think of, we created little summaries of would-be nations. And so if you look at that gazetteer, which is the first overview of the world we ever published 12 years ago or whatever, um, it'll say something like Cheliacs, and then it'll say Diabolical Empire in Decline, or like Forever Revolution. Those little phrases under there were the nubbins of every idea. So that little phrase, at one point, that was all we ever knew about most of those countries. And then we mapped stuff from our own campaigns or from our brains or whatever. Um, so I would say that, I, oh, I made up Iomidae, I made up Aridin. Uh, I don't know, it's hard to say, a lot of stuff. So does that mean that, quote, he invented Chelyax. Eric invented Chelyax. So anytime we're going to do an adventure in Chelyax, we've got to get Eric's it blessing. It does kind of mean that. Yeah, 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 to some degree. And it's not so much a blessing as like we're all kind of stewards of our own specific areas more so than everything else, right? So James really knows Varicia. Um, uh, Wes, when he worked for us, he really knew Ustalov. You know, each person kind of took on a couple of areas that were sort of theirs. And that way you can have unity of vision for that stuff, but also some continuity and things like that. And that continues through to this day. Even some of the newer folks who've joined, you know, obviously since we made the campaign setting, have found little areas that they want to claim as their own, which who is did, great. Who did Numeria? Uh, it was my idea originally. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, it was me. And then, yeah. and then James did the adventure path. I like the really weird ones. Like, it's like, yeah, I like Numeri because I grew up with Thundar the Barbarian, you right. know? And so the idea of, like, magic and super science, you know, really right. appeals to me. Yeah. And also, you know, there's a little bit of a Barrier Peaks riff on that, uh -huh. you know? And so we really wanted our world to be inclusive of all kinds of different fantasy. Because, look, if you don't want a, a, a nation with a crashed spaceship in it, just ignore it, you know, right. whatever. Uh, if you don't want fantasy Egypts, fine you know it doesn't it doesn't really matter but if you do want it we're going to give you some tools to have that type of campaign so who's deciding what's going to happen in some of the other continents well uh let's see adam daigle is kind of the uh the arcadia guy oh okay so he's been kind of shepherding that uh to some degree also because he was the one who was the head on um ruins of aslant he knows a lot of aslant stuff i would say i'm the free earthfall aslant guy you know so i've got most of that um I think, um, let's see, some of the other folks are really interested in, you know, Southern Garand and Kazmaron. John Compton's really into Iblidos, our sort of Greek mm -hmm. element. There's a lot of folks who are interested in um, Iobaria, uh, which is uh, sort of east of Brevoy, off the map. Yeah, lots of different stuff. Yeah, maybe we'll see some maybe of that we'll stuff. Maybe we'll see some. Well, and the other thing I think we're all kind of really hopping to get to is Southern Garand. So we sort of said when we made the campaign, and you can see this too if you look at the map, it gets weirder as you go further south, mm. right? So you, you, you start in kind of like Realm of the Mammoth Lords and like Irisin and the, the Linorm Kings, and these are pretty traditional fantasy. They might be high fantasy, they might be low fantasy, but they're sword and sorcery, folks. You go a little further down and you do get weird stuff like Numeria, but it's not until you get into that like, the southern continent where you have Nex and Geb and Katapesh and Syrian and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, 
And then below that, uh, in particular, Crystal Fraser came up with a bunch of stuff, but other folks have done stuff too, which is like Holomog and like the land of the Aruxes, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the lizard folk and the lands of cat folk. And it's going to get super weird down there. And so we're not quite ready to jump full bore into that. We've got a little ground to cover between, say, Absalom and there. But that's where we, I think a lot of people would like us to, to head, including wanna, people who work for me. I want to say the new adventure path, exploration of the South Pole. Oh, that'd be dope. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. It was like, what's down there? It's like creatures made out of color and sound. I don't even know if we have a South Pole. I mean, I know we have Sarusan, which is sort of our southern continent, but I'm not. Does Galarian have a southern ice cap? I don't even remember. I'm going to make it for you. Oh, okay. There we go. Sounds it could good. be mine. Yeah. And that's why everybody you, gets their section. Dude, man, I, you guys give me a lot of monsters and I keep getting them because I write the weirdest things. Yeah. So you went weird stuff. Like All right, I'm we'll keep going to add weird stuff. I will keep that in mind. Actually, you want to hear a weird homage to you? So I always sure. have to bring back Age of Worms because I yes. love Age of Worms and you yes. worked on that. Yes. So Ron Lundin tapped me to write some monsters for Agents of Edgewatch. Okay. And I used as my inspiration for those monsters, which people will find out, obviously, not for like another seven months. Yeah. From Age of Worms. Wow, cool. <laughs> nice. Well, so there's a, you'll be able to look at an Easter egg. Like you'll be able to see where that came from. Interesting. Sure. So cool. It's all going full circle. Interesting. <laughs> Why don't we get, yeah, I actually really liked, um, the worm that works, uh, the main bad guy. What was his name? Um, Caius. Caius. Yeah. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. You need a Caius. We were stoked to kind of put together using that villain for that. I kind of, we need like another, I mean, I guess, I guess Tarbafon's kind of like a Caius, but man, he's such a good villain. Yeah. He's so gross yeah, he's too. Gross. He's That's like a, a cool he's and gross yeah. villain. Yeah. Tarbafon is cool. And he's just like pure evil. He's not yeah, so gross. Yeah, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's a villain that I'm eager to see return. And that's because he was pretty cryptic when he last appeared. And that's that character. He's called the Ashen Man. And he's from the very end of, uh, of the playtest adventure that we did. And he's got some weird plans. And I, James has got some thoughts about him. So I'd be, I'd expect to see him again. Um, and then of course we got Rune Lords. There's still two Rune Lords bopping around. Belmarius and Sorshin. Sorshin's not quite as ugly as Caius, but you know, yeah. So there's there's some fun ones. And that's actually what, but that's what also helped make these adventures. I think it's like Batman. It's like Batman's boring. It's the villains that are yeah. interesting. Yeah. You almost want to have the really cool bad guys. Well, and it's tough when you're running a, a publishing thing for a tabletop role playing game too, because the villains that you're putting in there in adventures and stuff kind of exist to get killed. I mean, they're, you know, so what happens 20 years later? Do you go, what happened to that character? Well, I guess he got resurrected. You know, I don't know. We've certainly pulled that trick before and will again. Uh, but you got to be a little careful. You got to let ha the, the players have some of their victories. And no, there's no, and there's no shortage of villains. You can just, right. if they die, just have their next in line sure. show up and take over and they're worse. Right. Like, oh, you shouldn't have killed me. Because the people that were under me, they're way worse, and I was right. keeping them in line. Well, yeah, that's always a fun story, sure. <laughs> right, yeah. you could use that one. One of the neat things, just to go back to that for a second, yeah. you know, the, when we were doing uh, Age of Worms for Dungeons & Dragons in Dungeon Magazine in like 2004, I guess, or two, or whatever it was, mm -hmm. so long ago, I can't even remember. One of the things that we were able to do when we use a character like Caius, or we use a character like Dragotha, the Dracolich. Yeah, I love Dragotha. 
there were great and fun concepts in and of themselves. But the fact that they had been pulled from material like Greyhawk material that had been 10 years prior to that, you know, there's a certain kind of like inherent value or conjuration value or something of these things that have, li have just existed for a while. So to be able to pull like say the Whispering Tyrant who first appeared in a little miniature product we released called Vol uh, Volt of the Whispering Tyrant, it's kind of cool to have that character be around for as long as he has. So as the campaign setting continues to age and, 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 and uh, take on a fine vintage, like a fine wine, um, you, you have more options for names that people kind of recognize and are excited about. And it's fun to watch that happening. Well, again, that's actually why I always say Age of Worms is so good is because there was all this famous lore. You yeah. have like the Hand of Vecna. You got the Rod of Seven Parts. Yeah. You have doppelgangers. You have like, you know, famous monsters. And this adventure path, you saw everything. It's like, yeah, and it, I, Vecna, I mean, you get it. And I think <laughs> it was probably the most popular adventure path in that edition. Right. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, because right. the people who knew what that stuff was were super excited. And the people who just knew about it by lore were stoked to be able to get to experience it at the table, something that they maybe only read about on the internet or in their old books or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, ironically, the original outline for that campaign would have had a lot more of that stuff in there. Like what? Uh, well, it got rejected. Oh, uh, tell me. <laughs> well, it, it was originally going to have a lot more advanced. Well, it was going to be brazenly set in the world of Greyhawk and not right, right, right. sort of... You know, oh, yeah, you're like renamed characters. Well, I had to yeah. because I wasn't allowed to. to right. they, they said, no, well, we don't. You know, at the time, the, the whole idea was like, well, Greyhawk is the default world. Right. But I don't think they expected anyone who worked for them to actually know about or care about Greyhawk. So I think for them, it was like, well, it's too hard. I mean, this is very not charitable, and I apologize. But this was my opinion at the time, and I still have it. It's too hard. Forgotten Realms has too much continuity. It's too expensive as a management issue to have people be experts at that. And only a small portion of the audience even cares. So if we can instead have this collection of nouns that really means nothing to anybody, then it will look like it's rooted in a real thing. But we don't have to do any of the, the discipline or hard work to make it actually fit in there. And I was 24 at the time and filled with piss and vinegar. And I hated that idea with a passion. Because, of course, I loved Greyhawk, and it was very important to me. And I spent the previous decade talking to people online. And I knew that there were thousands of people that also found that stuff very important. But I, I think that some of the decision makers at, at WOTC at the time were about maybe 10 years older than me. And their memory of Greyhawk was maybe just the original box set and that old folio, where it really was kind of like, fill in the blanks, guys. That's all it is. And so there was a little bit of a disconnect, I think, between me and some of the other decision makers there, where I thought the idea of, like, this is a great opportunity to embrace the rich history of the brand and stuff. And they just wanted to run away from it as far as possible. And I, I think with some irony, I look at what they're doing with fifth edition now, where they're really embracing a lot of that stuff in a very, a little Can't bit less circle. directed way. It's like, guys, I was telling you to do this 20 years ago. It's, well, you know what? It's so stupid because obviously the main wizard you hang out with is tensor. Yeah, obviously. And when I ran it, I made a tensor. Yeah, I knew people and, would. And it's like, Dude, he has, he's like half the spells are named after yeah. him. It's like, so why you, wouldn't you? Right. Why wouldn't you want right. him in there? Cause right. it's like, dude, you're hanging out with right. the actual guy whose the spells yeah. are named after. Right. <laughs> but I wasn't allowed to do that. And so there were more adventures with him, including right. a, an adventure in his, his tower. There were a few more adventures in the city of Greyhawk itself. Right. There was, there were a lot of crazy stuff in there. It um, was fantastic. And it was 20 adventures. 
I know. So in retrospect, I'm glad that they didn't have us do it because 20 is too many. But it um, it would have been pretty spectacular. But I got away with as much as I possibly could. I really, you know, like I said, I was a youth filled with piss and vinegar. So I said, oh, you want me to change the names? Okay. It's not called Greyhawk. It's called the Free City. I'll make of up a Greyhawk. couple of other names. No, I, uh, not as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's right. what we used to call it. We used to call it the Free City of Greyhawk. Of course. <laughs> and so it was kind of one of those deals where... It was a little bit more like if you knew, if you were part of the in-group and you knew what we were talking about, you got more value out of it. It just, I think, was a little unfortunate that we had to jump through those hoops at all. So that will be it. You asked how Pathfinder will eventually end. You'll do one of those. Super Adventure, 12-chapter Adventure Path, where you just do a who's who, a where's where, and I know what it is. You get to go and touch the Star Stone and become a god. That certainly would be a smart way to end the edition. Yes, it uh, would. But yeah, that well, we'll have to we'll have to wait with bated breath. Hopefully, for quite some time before yes. that occurs. Well, all right, we're running out of time. So, once again, Eric, I wanted to thank you. And I saw that PaizoCon tickets went on sale. Yeah. And I already got mine right away. Awesome. Got the hotel room. Awesome. Very excited. Yep. You're gonna have big announcements this year. And last two years. You've had a lot. It's going to be right. hard to talk I know. It. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, you had Starfinder and the Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Yeah, we'll announce some fun stuff. I don't we're not, I don't think... I wouldn't prepare to have a, a brand new role-playing game announced or anything quite that crazy. <laughs> so, no, this will be... A, uh, but we've got some fun stuff up our sleeves for sure. The more relaxing Gen Con. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, we've got Gen Con. I don't know how relaxed Gen Con Sorry, not be. Gen Con. I mean, a more relaxed PaizoCon. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But, again, we're going to be... Showing people some Absalom stuff. Well, that'll just come out. We're going to be showing people some uh, uh, Advanced Player's Guide stuff. You know, the final versions of those will be done, so right. you'll be able to play those classes at the demos and things. Um, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm uh, PaizoCon just keeps getting better and better as far as I'm oh, concerned. PaizoCon, it's like, it's my favorite con because it's, it's sort of like when I was a kid, that's what cons are like. Mm -hmm. They're a small, intimate in one hotel room. Right. Where everyone who's actually at the con is staying in the hotel. Yeah. So you can yeah. actually hang out with everyone. You get a chance to talk to just about everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, the atmosphere we want at the right, show. Right. Right. And um, those don't really exist anymore. Yeah. It's tough because especially lately, cons just keep exploding. You know, I mean, you start a con. This con is much bigger than it was two years ago. No packs on know? And yeah, I was going to some huge. of the original PAXs. Yeah. Like back in the day, and they wouldn't, they would have fit in a, a 50th of the space we're in right now. And so many, many of these conventions are just growing almost exponentially. And so we do not want that for PaisoCon. We want their, you know, we've got a banquet room and uh, that's it. You know, we want everyone to be able to go to that. And we're not going to sell a lot more tickets beyond that because at that point, and we've never had to stop, right? We're, We've, we've continued to move to slightly bigger hotels, but I think we're in a hotel we really like now. And I don't think that, that we want the show to get tremendously larger than it is. It's a lot of work, too. I mean, honestly, oh, for yeah. everybody on Paizo, it's, it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah, uh, but you don't have to go very far. No, it's not a long drive, but it is like, <laughs> make sure the whole staff is awake at 6.30 a.m. to help the first people in line for their badges. And it's like... It's also con uh, season, because yeah, oh, it's right con, in the middle. And then Origins... And then Gen Con. Oh, it's worse than that. Oh, and then also, oh, right, you have to go to y Yeah, UK. the day after PaizoCon ends, right. about nine of us get in a plane and fly to the UK Game Expo. Right. I, I mean, it's, and it's, it's gauntlet, you know, but it's fun, too. You know, it's, you get to see friends, you get to throw dice, you get to play games. It's a pretty good way to make a living. Yeah. It's not so bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. 
All right, Eric. Thanks a lot. Nice I'm talking sure to you. As I usual. will be talking to you at PaizoCon. I will be there, and we'll find out what's going on with probably the next adventure path. I hopefully by then. Oh, I think there'll be some some news. Oh, some news. Ooh, I'm excited. All right, thanks. Yep. Hey everyone, Steve here. So once again, thank you so much, Eric Mona, for joining us in the show. A pleasure as always. Hopefully I can get Eric on the show again. He's really busy, but whenever he's on the show, we can talk about, well, everything. That's the nice thing about having the publisher from Paizo on. You could talk about any project that Paizo is coming out with. He covers everything. It's awesome. So at the very bare minimum, I hopefully can get another interview with Eric Mona when I go to PaizoCon in May, which is going to be here before you know it. And also, don't forget, last week I had a great interview with Luis Loza, where we went into the Lost Omens books, and he went into extensive detail on the Legends book. Probably way too much detail, but boy, that sounds like an awesome book. Plus the other two books coming out, Gods and Magic and Absalon. He talks all about those. And then finally, finally, for those of you new to the show, definitely make sure you check out a few things. One, we have actual plays, one for the Fall of Plague Stone, which we're only about 20 episodes in, so you can easily catch up to that, and that's a fun adventure, because that's only going to be from levels 1 to 4, so that will finish up in the next few months. And then finally, if you're more adventurous, you could jump into our Dead Sons adventure path. I'll tell you, though, even though we have like 100-plus episodes, you don't have to jump in the very beginning. We actually have parts where you could jump in the beginning of each book. We're in the middle of book 6, and we're going to also be wrapping that up next year. You could just jump in the middle of book 6 if you want, and we'll catch you up. That's episode 107. So if you don't want to listen to like, oh, I don't know, the previous 106 episodes, just literally jump into episode 107. I catch you up on books one through five, and then you can just start listening. If you like what you hear, go back. You know, go back all the way to episode one or go back to 50 or whatever you want. I strongly recommend you do that. I promise it won't really ruin anything because so much happens between these books. Don't worry, you'll be fine. You can listen to episode 107, 108, and then go back, and you'll be fine, trust me. And then also, a few other quick things, and then we'll get to the interview. There's a Discord channel where we play lots of games. Just go to discord.rollforcombat.com. We have contests. You can play games of Pathfinder, games of Starfinder. We have over 125 games going on right now. New ones start up every single week. We actually play on the Discord channel. And then next year, be on the lookout for several new podcasts and a new contest website. I can't talk about it too much. Guarantee you're going to hear about it. It's going to be a gigantic new website in the world of Pathfinder and role-playing in general. You're all going to want to know about it. You're all going to love it. Trust me, it's going to be awesome. That's coming out next year. And then also, finally, finally, we're going to have plenty more interviews. We have over 20-plus interviews of people from Paizo and other people in the role-playing industry on the website. Check it out. If you want to hear, listen to Eric's interview or if you want to listen to Luisa's interview, we also have a ton of interviews way back from Gen Con from a few months ago. They're still very relevant today where we talk about how Pathfinder 2nd Edition was created, what to expect from Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and of course, don't forget, tons of Starfinder. Tons of Starfinder stuff is on the show as well. I'm kind of like, you know, talking about Pathfinder right now because it's the flavor du jour, but we also have tons of Starfinder stuff on the show if you're interested in that as well. Anyhow, with that, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you later.